man, I could watch referees and I could see who handled the pressure a lot better than others. So you became more knowledgeable about your staff. Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, the cusp show where we talk about the business of sports, media, technology, science, disruption, health and wellness, all different kinds of things. I'm Joe Favorito here in the first weekend of November with my co-host Tom Richardson. Tom, another month down. Yeah, and another month um, or a period of time with a couple of sports equinoxes, as yes. uh, I think we both noted before, it doesn't happen very often. But it, it feels a little bit overwhelming every night to turn on your TV and or your streaming service because there's such a plethora of sports to watch right now. The, the, the whole, um, like last night, I actually, because I was watching the World Series, I actually forgot the Thursday night football game was on Amazon. Yeah. And then, of course, they made reference to it since Philadelphia and Houston were playing in uh, both cities, were playing in both sports. Um, and it's like, oh, okay. So at one of the at one of the commercials, I went over to Amazon and uh, watched that for a bit. And went back and forth. The baseball game ended up being pretty good, but good World Series. I mean, we're recording this uh, as the Astros took a three two lead last night, uh, off day today, and then they're getting a Saturday night, which I think is they're hoping for for their big game. And I and I I, I assume MLB Joe is maybe hoping it doesn't end on Sunday because then they'd be facing the big old bad NFL. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 think, I, think game, I think a game seven would hold its own. Think, yeah, yeah, game sevens or game sevens, yeah. you're right. But and, but Sunday is a tough day for any other entertainment property in media to try to succeed. And, and by the way, nothing like November baseball, by the yeah. way. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> well, um, and, and by the way, this this weather we've had in the Northeast is insane. It's supposed to be in the 70s this weekend in, in mm -hmm. the New York area, which I, I don't think we've ever had uh, right. the first week in November. But that's climate change for you, I guess. And, and two two other quick things. One is, um, by the time you guys are listening to this, the New York City Marathon will have been over, but it's That's back right. in full force this this year with Rob Simulcare now being uh, going from NBC that, yeah. to yeah. executive director. And then who knows where Kyrie Irving will be by the time people listen to this in a week, in 10 months, you yeah. know. I think I think Amari Stoudemire will probably help him cr uh, convert to Judaism at some point. But um, uh, <laughs> uh, I didn't, I didn't think of that angle. That's an interesting. That's an interesting. So actually, it's funny, uh, and, and this is a good transition to our guest. But uh, one of the things I, I actually suggested, and he actually texted me. So for who's, those, who's the he you refer? Who's the he you're referring to? You see, so oh, so okay. Sorry. so so the person uh, I texted is actually Elliot Steinmetz, who's the head coach at Yeshiva University, who is arguably. The best Division Three coach, you know, at least on the at the island of Manhattan, but in a, throughout most of the area. But um, and you know, and Michael Sweetney, who played for the Knicks when I worked for the Knicks, uh, is on the staff. So, wouldn't you think of a great kind of transition from elite basketball, understanding Judaism, to have a conversation mm -hmm. with Kyrie Irving, who I don't really think has an interest in in, in discussing it, but yeah. just kind of a, an entire mess, and we don't even have to get into the coaching situation, which also probably be resolved by the time uh, they get to that. But yeah, yeah. Um, well, no, but look, it's it's considering um, that most other aspects of the NBA seem to be going pretty well. They're on the verge, and many have been reporting of a massive new media deal. I mean, I don't know. If, I assume it'll be announced next year. Um, but you know, the the vibe of the sport with the big players and the par you know, a little bit more parity. I mean, otherwise things seem pretty good. But this is really an unfortunate start to the yeah. season with the PR. So um, anyway, let's move on to a, a better yeah. talk. And yeah. uh, one last thing, because I know some of the people listen to the show, uh, the people, I feel terrible for today. It's a Friday, November 4th. Um, Twitter announced their layoffs today. Oh, man. It affected wow. many, many people who we know on the sports side. Brian Polikoff, who's the head of PR, Twitter Sports tweeted this morning that he got let go. Um, so who knows where Elon will take, um, you know, his new toy going forward, but it's, uh, it'll be interesting to see where this all plays. So let me, with, without spending much more than 30 seconds on this, cause I, we haven't talked this week. Um, I've actually had thoughts about maybe get jumping off of Twitter. Like this, this is not, this is not a good situation right now. And I know a lot of people who have been into Twitter have been thinking the same thing. Some people publicly, some people privately, but I'm not really confident that this is going to work out the way I think it should yeah. work out. Yeah. Um, would you ever consider 
the big leap. Well, I, 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 there's been a lot of things that have happened. They've changed the algorithms. Now you got to buy to make right. sure people. It's, it's more you. like Facebook in that respect. Yeah. It is actually very similar to Facebook. I actually asked. Uh, it's a Friday, so we were in class yesterday. I asked all our Chinese students that are in my class if I should join Weibo. <laughs> <laughs> well, my manager's really not that good, but yeah. so. Well, anyway, well, your twenty-three thousand followers have become two point three million if you can get yeah. the Chinese population behind you. Exactly. <laughs> anyway. So, um, you know, we talk a lot, Tom, as you know, about career transitions and second acts and resilience. And, you know, we've certainly touched on all the challenges of COVID over the last couple of years. And uh, our guest today, um, probably most of our audience will know him from when he was running up and down with a whistle on the NBA court. But he's actually had, <laughs> I don't know how many acts, maybe five or six acts, including um, a, a great book on on his life uh as an undercover policeman, but most recently he's taken a look at um, the world through the eyes of health workers around COVID. Uh, the name of the book is Heroes of Human, Wisdom, Lessons in Resilience and Courage. Uh, and our guest today, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to having him talk about that story because that's important with all the things going on with mental wellness and and uh, especially amongst young people today. Um, but, but um, uh, Bob Delaney, welcome to the Cusp Show. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Tom. Uh, man, you guys fleshed out so many things uh, in the introduction. <laughs> I, I, I'm making notes already because um, uh, thanks for bringing up the New York City Marathon. I, I, my wife has has run 25 marathons around oh the world, wow. and um, New York City Marathon three times. And I will tell you, I go to every one. And to me, it is the most amazing event because it's the only place where the weekend warrior and the elite athlete are on the same stage. And then everything that people run for, my wife would run for the B Foundation for, for Cancer Research. We have a good friend, Dr. Jillian Style, who is a, uh, teaches at Columbia, is, is running this week as well, her first marathon. So it, it's just an exciting thing. And great props to you guys bringing that up because I think at times, with everything that goes on at this time of year with the World Series and football, uh, that may get lost at times. Well, I, th I think anybody who's ever even just visited the marathon, I used to live on the Upper East Side, so it was an, a, kind of an annual party, uh, as I recall when I was, was younger. Um, it's, it is. It's, it, there's just something really, there's such a great feeling and buzz around it when you're in New York on Marathon Day, particularly when the weather's nice as it's supposed to be. I think it's supposed to be okay this, this week. Mm -hmm. um, so, Bob, is she running on Sunday? No, she's not running now. The transition has gone from the twenty-five marathons around the world to uh, a focus of pickleball. She is oh, a pickleball. Oh my God! She is no. totally oh, did pickleball. You guys see, no. Wait, wait. No. Did you guys see the latest real sports? Brian Gumble real sports. Yeah. The story about yeah. pickleball. Yeah. Joe, how I crazy? Did not. How crazy was that? Basically, Bob. The gist of it is that they did a segment on the unstoppable growth of pickleball. And how, while it's great for a lot of particularly older people, it's become a menace in yeah. these towns and these cities because of the sound. Because there's oh, so okay. many players gotcha. on that right. the click, click, right. click of the ball and, and the rackets. And um, I, I, Joe, I, I thought it was a great segment. And um, there's now a lot of lawsuits between yeah. citizens and pickleball associations and stuff like that. Bubble. Well, it's an amazing sport. And I, and I attend those as well. And what's really cool is, yeah, I, I've refereed NBA Finals games and All Star games, and and, and you know that all that. And, but at the pickleball courts, I'm only known as Billy's husband, and uh, I'm the guy with the towel in the water. Yeah, that's the best way to be. Yeah. Yes, sir. Um, so, Bob, we'll obviously get into technology and refereeing and your experiences, but tell us about really the two books. Obviously, the the you know the first book, uh, Covert, was about you know your career away from the NBA, the unique career you had. But more importantly, tell us about how this this latest book came about and, and what's been the reception? What was kind of the impetus for it? Yeah, so to, to, to share with the heroes are human lessons and resilience, courage and wisdom from the COVID front lines, as we go through and spend some time together, my backstory is that I um, played high school basketball, college basketball. I was at... Um, what was then known as Jersey City State College, New Jersey City University. You mentioned Yeshiva. We would play against them back in the day. And um, I, I, I tell players in the NBA that I, I'm like, then I came out early too, but I came out early, 
to become a New Jersey state trooper. Um, the state police had not been given tests. I knew the NBA would not be calling me uh, when I was the uh, captain of the Jersey City State basketball team. The, the skills were only at a certain level. And so I went into the state police and I was tapped to do an undercover job. What I told was, what I was told it was going to be six months. It ended up three years of my life. I became another person. I ran a trucking company in New Jersey, became a mob associate. My partners in the trucking company were the Genovese and Bruno crime families. Um, we arrested hundreds of mob guys from New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia, uh, Florida. And um, that story is a Soprano West type story that can go on for hours. Yeah. But um, I wrote the book Surviving the Shot, excuse me, Covert, My Years Infiltrating the Mob. And I became a student of post-traumatic stress because I experienced post-traumatic stress disorder after I had done that undercover work. And the only thing that made sense to me was getting back on a basketball floor. I lived on a street that had no rules and boundaries. And I went to a game that had boundaries and rules to give me an inner peace. And so I became a student of post-traumatic stress. And um, the more that I studied it, the more I learned about myself, where I learned about how the game um, actually was serving me in my therapy because uh, the running around, the endorphins being released, the, the hypervigilance being tended to with being on the basketball court. And so, as I said, becoming a student, I wrote a second book called Surviving the Shadows, A Journey of Hope into Post-Traumatic Stress. And it was the work that I was doing with the military and law enforcement and firefighters. And I would spend time in Iraq and Afghanistan meeting with our troops and, and sharing this message of what I call operational stress versus post-traumatic stress. I think that subject of post-traumatic stress disorder has become over-medicalized. This is a human condition. After the Civil War, we, we referred to it as soldier's heart. After World War I, we called it uh, shell shock, World War II, battle fatigue, Korea, Vietnam, flashbacks. And then we went to post-traumatic stress disorder. And that when we over-medicalized it, I think we scared people away from the conversation. And I don't, please don't interpret that I'm saying we don't need the medical side of the house. We do. We have tremendous resources. We just have to figure out how to build better bridges to allow this conversation to be normalized. And I think that through sports that we're starting to see these kinds of things take place. I've been at this for four decades of sharing my story in hopes that people connect the dots to their story. And um, this, Joe, to get to the question that you asked, when COVID came out, I was driving by hospitals and seeing heroes work here. And I know my work that uh, I did in law enforcement, people referred to me as a hero or a tough guy. And I felt so hypocritical because the entire time I was undercover, I was scared to death. And um, I knew what my internal feelings were. And people didn't see me at two o'clock in the morning walking around my house, pushing shower curtains back with my gun out because I was afraid they were coming to get me. The paranoia was so heavy. So um, it being around the military, I know it's a word that anyone that's called a hero doesn't like it. They do. They have heroic actions and they refer to it and say, sir, I'm just doing my job. And it's the same thing. So I thought of that. All those people in the hospital that are being said they're heroes and we're being asked to sit six feet away in a driveway and have a happy hour together as if we're sacrificing and knowing what they're going. So it it drove me to become a, a student and learn. And so I would go to hospitals through contacts, be able to go to COVID boards and see them in action, and then hear their stories. So this book, Heroes Are Human, is really not a story about COVID. It's a story about frontline work that is done by those who serve, noble professions, noble professions of being a teacher, of being a nurse, of being a doctor, of being a, a cop, of being a firefighter, a soldier. These are the noble professions in our society. Amazing. So, so Bob, at what point did you um, in that experience, have the impetus to write a book. I mean, obviously you had a you had to uh, conclude that you had you saw enough and you had enough thoughts on this vis-a-vis -vis the other part of of your experience with uh, PTSD and all that that you actually could bring pen to paper, as they say, to write a book. And I, I assume it was a little bit easier the second time around because you actually knew the process. 
And it was actually third by then, right? So my first book was Covert, My Years of Treating the Mob. And I started talking in that book about how my transition and how basketball was my therapy and how, well, I explained the undercover story was also a transition and an admission to my post-traumatic stress experience. And then working with the military as I did for the past 25 years, and as I said, going to Iraq and Afghanistan, military posts all over Europe, Asia, uh, the United States, General Dempsey, General McRae, uh, Admiral McRaven, General Odierno, all pushing me out. I, I learned stories from the men and women who serve us. And I paralleled those stories to what was going on because from my view, that our healthcare workers have been at war with an invisible enemy. So there was a similarity to the experiences that our military have at being at war with enemy on foreign soil. So the emotional impact that that takes is what I wanted to delve into and understand. And in August of 2020 in the Tampa Bay Times, they wrote an article predicting a post-traumatic stress wave within the healthcare community. And unfortunately it has come true. We've actually seen an uptick in the healthcare community of suicides. Um, when, when folks are in those kinds of situations, you think about our healthcare community. They have trauma come in the front door. Our troops, police officers and firefighters go to trauma. The trauma comes to the healthcare workers. And they have never been afraid of bringing home cancer. They've never been a home, afraid of bringing home a broken leg but they have to be afraid of bringing home COVID. They've never had to hold the hands of patients that were dying because there were family members that were allowed to be there. I would hear stories from them where they said, uh, I just recently uh, did a book signing at a hospital where we're gifting the books to the healthcare workers and saying it's, it's an honor, thank and support program that we're, we've implemented. And one nurse had tears in her eyes and she said to me, Thank you for acknowledging us because it's the most difficult thing I've ever had to do. And I've been 20 years in ICU work. She said, but when you've got a patient that cannot speak because they're intubated and they're writing on a whiteboard, please don't let me die. That is so emotional, so impactful. I had another nurse that told me that she knew she was going through tough times. She just wanted to have a day to chill out with her husband. They went out on a boat and they spent the day on a lake. As they came in, she went off to the front of the boat to tie it off, and she started crying uncontrollably. And her husband had a solar tied the boat off, and what had happened, there was a small boat on the dock that had a tarp over it that was the same color of the body bags that she had been putting patients into, and she remembered every one of their names and saw every one of their faces. And these are the post-trauma impacts, and it reminds me exactly what I would hear from our soldiers. I would hear from troops coming home from Iraq and Afghanistan, sir, I can't go over a bridge in the United States because I, without checking for an IED. I hate garbage day in my town because along the road, that's where IEDs can be. These are true stories of what people are, are, are experiencing. My belief is we owe them. They are serving us. So any way that we can support and by acknowledging what they are going through, acknowledgement is an important part, right? We need to say thank you, honor, and support. Are the institutions stepping up to help in the different sectors that you've referenced? Yes, I, I find that when we shine a light on a subject, I, I we say, I like, I've never met a microphone I don't didn't like, right? <laughs> I, I mean, I'll get up on any stage and, right. and cameras and all. And but, but what I'm doing is shining the light on the subject. Right. Um, the answers come from the seats. Once you shine a light on a subject, the answers come from the seats by everyone having a voice about how they're individually taking care of it. Because Tom, think about this. Um, but what I will say to your question is, I am finding that the healthcare community is very good at taking care of us. They're not very good at taking care of themselves. Yeah. And um, programs have to be implemented. I'm now going to nursing schools and having this conversation of self-care, underlining that self-care does not mean selfish. We need to take care of ourselves in order to be able to make this world a better place. So all of these kinds of conversations are taking place. The military is probably 15 to 20 years ahead of the healthcare community at addressing this conversation because it's something that has been tabled since the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. 
I want to kind of not transition, but also open up the make the pie a little bit bigger. Coaches, because you mentioned the value of coaches and teachers and officials, and I don't want to call it PTSD, but have you had those conversations? And I'm sure you have with coaches because because a lot of times now, especially with the tremendous amount of input going into mental health work um, around athletes. A lot of times the coaches, and especially given the crazy world we're in right now, everybody from Little League to the NFL to the NBA, the people who are, are officiating games are going under a tremendous amount of pressure and, and are taking it home with them. Have you had those types of conversations as well? And how, how have they been played out? Yeah, um, one of the things that I do, Joe, is I make it a practice when a coach is fired to contact them. Uh, I may not know them, but we may know each other's names. Um, that's a traumatic experience. Um, you know, we, we can minimize and make like, okay, they're making all kinds of money and they're moving on to another job at some point, but there's still an impact that that takes. I, one of the things that I learned in working with our military is that in, in, we would call it post-traumatic stress education and awareness programs when I would go to speak at a post and the soldiers would all sit there with their arms folded, leaning back. And I said to one of the bosses at the Pentagon, we got to change the name because as soon as they hear post-traumatic stress, that conjures up mental illness. And it's as if we're saying there's something wrong with them. We change it to operational stress. So I use the term operational stress in, in a lot of the conversations that I have. There's operational stress within the healthcare community. There's operational stress within law enforcement. And those who serve have to steel themselves against the emotions that they would normally want to express in order to do their jobs. So you have to hide what you're feeling and become very good at controlling that. But what happens is then you carry that into your personal lives as well, right? So in, 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 in contacting coaches, it's just about having that conversation about being honest about what you're feeling. It's embarrassing to go out of the house now. The place that you used to go to that everybody wanted to buy you dinner Nobody wants to buy your dinner anymore. They're looking at you with jaundice eye. So acknowledging that people are going through something is the first step because what is personal is universal. If I'm feeling something, you're feeling it. There are no new emotions in our, in our world. It's only how we navigate them. And having a and normalizing this conversation versus making it sound as if there's something wrong with someone, I think is the most important part. The reason being... I call it mind health versus mental health because mental health conjures up a level of mental illness. Mind health is no different than building my biceps up. We're creating a strength within me with physical health. We, we need to develop mind health. And I think that in the world of sports that we've become, you think back, I'm old enough to remember when people got themselves into shape as they got to start playing games. Everybody's in the top physical condition. Then it become, became like mental focuses and all. So all these areas, the way you're going to get better is by being uh, active in trying to have mental imagery and, 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 and being able to look at your particular sport of how I can handle this at the highest level, not only physically, but emotionally and mentally. And that is what is going to make the difference between top athletes. So that focus is there. Well, what comes with that? When you start digging into this stuff, you got to start realizing that, that there's some, you know, not all wounds bleed. Invisible wounds cut as deep as the wounds we do not see. And folks have invisible wounds that are inside of them, that scabs have built over. But if you knock a scab off, it's your, bleed, your wound starts to bleed again. The same thing with invisible wounds. We start going down paths with players and they experience something. I'll just give you one example. I work now for the Southeastern Conference. Greg Sankey created a position for me after I had retired from the NBA as the Vice President of Referee Operations. And um, my title is Special Advisor for Officiating Development Performance. And when I first got there, he called me and said, I didn't hire you for this, but I know you do this kind of work. We just had a player shot and killed at LSU. And if you remember, Wade Sims was a player that was shot and killed. I went and spent six plus weeks with that team, uh, not consecutively, but on every couple weeks for a couple of days, I would spend time with them processing. 
And what we came to find, there were some players that had not processed some deaths in their own families that had been through uh, gunshots. And so that triggered all of that back into their lives. And so we had to have a process. And what I adopted was some of the process that we had done with the military. One of the things we said was, we're not going to strip his locker. We're going to put plexiglass in front of his locker, and that will be an honoring of that team, of their teammate. And wherever he would normally sit, his uniform was there. Because if you strip all that and take it away, that team is losing that person again. And it's as if we're not reminded who they are. So all of these processes are important. And the more that we're learning, the more that we're able to help people through traumatic events. Uh, can we talk about the refereeing experience a little bit? Um, sure, yeah. So okay. w- one of the things that's quite interesting, you did for almost 25 years. Mm-hmm. And I think those of us who are sports fans, which is a ton of people, we usually don't think about the officiating until there's a problem. <laughs> you know, there's a challenge. Right. Right. There's something you disagree with or, or something that's really evident on the replay. Um, how stressful was it being a referee in, in one of the most popular and high-profile leagues in the world? You did it for a long time. And what's interesting is the second part of the question is you, you did a kind of pre-digital, you know, 87 when the NBA wasn't nearly as big as it became. And then you kind of had a transition to this world of digital and technology, which had more influences on you with the replay rules and things like that. So I know I jumbled a couple of things together in that question, but, but talk about that experience. I, I just, I guess I never really thought about how stressful it might actually be for the referee. Yeah, it's all, I, I, I would tell people, you know, if you, you ended up on ESPN, that's not bad. But when you're, when you end up on CNN and they're talking about your plays, you got a problem. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's become, that's become international news now. Right. And um, so yeah, I broke in in 1985, right? I, I started refereeing uh, at the pro level in 1985. And um, that was in the Continental Basketball Association, which is the forerunner to the G League. And so you had uh, no replay. You really had no video to even learn from uh, because games weren't being taped like they are. There were so many things that we did. When I first got in the NBA in 1987, we would do everything we could to try and learn from the video. Daryl Garrettson was a, a big proponent of it, but we didn't have the technology. So we had to become innovative. And if you remember Blockbuster back in the day, if you sure. rent it, if you rented three videos from Blockbuster, they gave you the player to right. be able to watch. So we would go to Blockbuster in the afternoon that you had a game, buy, rent the three, get the equipment. Then we would get that big VHS after the game and we could plug it in and we could watch games afterwards. The trick was the next day we had to get on a flight and get going. So we had to give the um, the Bellman $20 to return everything. <laughs> <laughs> but that was our way of trying to learn. And then we became more sophisticated. We got high eight and we got then the computer age and all. One of the things I was on a flight one time going to a playoff game in Phoenix and I'm sitting in like one B and in three B is, is Greg Sag and Sag's going to announce the game for TNT. And I've got my video out, which was a, a high eight and I'm watching and he came up to me at one point in the flight. He says, what are you doing? He said, I watch video on fast forward. He said, what are you talking about? He said, I'm watching this thing. It's just like flying. I said, I keep making it go faster to see if I can see it so that I can train my eyes that when I go out on the basketball floor, it will look slower to me. And if it looks slower to me, it gives me a better chance of making a better decision. I can see the beginning, the middle, and the end of the play. So we were constantly trying to figure out how can we do things to enhance our ability to referee the greatest athletes on the planet. And I, I share with folks that if I could ever bring you out on an NBA floor, it's like 10 guys in a blender. I mean, they are just going. It's so fast and the action's taken. But your eyes, just like you can train, as I said, physically, you can train your eyes to be able to see things, slow it down so that then you can have a decision-making process. Wow. Um, could I, Joe, do you mind if I do a quick follow-up? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, so 
There's, there's a, uh, maybe it's a, it's a misconception by a lot of fans and I've never, I've never met a high level referee. So this is a real pleasure to be having this conversation, but I got to ask the question. There's a, there's, there's a perception that perhaps the superstar players will get the calls. It comes up a lot by the announcers watching TV. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because obviously there is kind of a hierarchy in the NBA. It's it's one sport where you have like bona fide worldwide superstars. There's probably what I guess these days twenty or twenty five of them. And then there's a lot of folks who are young, younger, not as not as famous. And it seems like there must be pressure on the refs to kind of keep that in mind. Is that something that's real? Yeah, or is I, that I, just I, in our imaginations? I think that's um, a conception that comes out. So uh, there's a couple of ways to answer that and and, and break it down. Um, more often than not, ex-players are announcing. And um, ex-players have a difficult time saying any other player is better than they are. And so, uh, <laughs> of course, Michael Jordan got all the calls because, uh, yeah, well, it's it's because they do well want to admit that Michael was that much faster than them, that much better than them. It, that's one element to it. The, there's another element to it as well, is that people say that stars get most of the calls. Well, that's because the star has ball in his hand probably about 80% of the time. Um, so yeah. there's a lot of reasons for this to take place. And um, they also become more adept at their profession. And, and I would hear that uh, a rookie doesn't get that call kind of thing. Well, it's not that the rookie doesn't get the call. The rookie doesn't understand. He's coming from where he's played 20 to 25 games at college, and now he's into an 82-game schedule and trying to figure out how to, how to be able to, and, and the strength of the players. Um, when you started talking about a Carl Malone at 32 years of age playing against a guy at 21, it wasn't even a comparison. And so all of these things, I think, get put in um, and then add into the fact that um, the video and, and the replay that could be shown and the plays that we did miss, right? I mean, I, I would always say there's no perfection in officiating. We strive for ex excellence, and many times we fall short of that as well. Um, the data that comes out uh, is, is so powerful. It says anywhere between 92 to 93% correct calls when blowing the whistle. And what I would say to referees when I was in the director official's position is that the first thing I want you to do is when you go to video, I want you to reinforce the plays you're getting correct, the why and the how. Why are we getting that call correct and how can we repeat it? Because there's a tendency in our society in every walk of life to go to the negative. We got to find out what we did wrong. We got to find out what we did wrong. I mean, teachers put how many wrong you got on top of the paper at times versus how many you got right. And so if we go chase that other 7%, we're going to lose a piece of that 92, 93%. We have to keep reinforcing positive, chip away at that other percentage and hope to just, we're never going to get to 100%. I've been in, I've been in that locker room for 1,600 plus regular season games, 200. I've never had a perfect game. And um, you come out of it hopes that you do not have an influence on the game with making a horrible call at the end. The real issue comes with officiating, and that's why replay has been a tremendous help, is if I make a bad call in the first half, you have time to recover as a team. If I make a bad call with 30 seconds to go in a game, you will have time to recover from that call. And that's where the magnitude gets magnified right so that's it and it's just part of the business but tom to the other part of the question as strange as this may sound the most inner peace i've ever had in my life is on a basketball floor in the middle of a game no one can get to me between the, those lines my focus has to be so high on what i'm doing no matter what else is going on in my life i'm at the happiest point of i am because i'm around the greatest athletes in the world I'm 58 years old, 59, 60 years old, refereeing a basketball game with the greatest athletes in the world and doctorates on the sidelines of Phil Jackson, and Pat Riley, and Doc Rivers. I mean, it's, it's such a great feeling. It, it's a euphoria to be out on that floor. Sounds like you get into the flow state, you know, during yes, the game. Yes, it's, it's so cool. Just, 
Yeah. Really nice. All right, I gotta um, ask. I gotta ask one more, Joe, because this might have been on your on your mind too, as as Bob was just describing that. If you can be honest, who was the biggest pain in the ass player during all your time <laughs> coaching? Because you know, yeah. some guys really like to complain to the refs. Yeah, I, I always I, I always said that uh, that when I get asked that question, it depended on the night. Um, you know, some okay. things be going on. But, but you have a long, you have a longitudinal study of like over but, two decades yeah, to, to answer. But I will that. tell you that Danny Ainge was a pain. He never showed up, and he complained about everything. And one night, uh, Boston was playing the Knicks, and uh, Mark Jackson was guarding uh, uh, Danny, and the, he, Danny was complaining about everything. And, and they were up by twenty, and it was like towards the end of the game. And I just looked at Danny and said, "I wish you could have hit a curveball. I would have never met you." Uh, because you know, Danny was in the Toronto, was yeah. in Major League Baseball. Uh, but um, it, it depended on the night. Um, it, and some players had to be angry to play. And then, yeah. you know, later in my career, the NBA became a love, became a love fest where everybody knows each other and they right. hug each other. So yeah. you had to be angry at somebody. So like Rashid would be angry at us, Gary Payton. That was an anger level, but that was a motivation. Yeah. And I... I understood that. And so, you know, none of this is personal, Tom. I, I, I always say that um, the true measure of a, a professional referee is when he or she understands how to interact with the will to win. The will to win is coming at you. It, if whatever call I make, it's interpreted as that gets in the way of a win. And I was very fortunate in my law enforcement career. My senior man was Bob Scott, and he drilled into my head that just because you have a uniform and a badge does not mean you get to be disrespectful or demeaning to people. And he said, you'll truly be a professional law enforcement officer when after you arrest someone or you give them a ticket, they say thank you. They're not saying thank you for what you did. They're saying thank you for how you did it. And I brought that over into my officiating. And, and, and I share that with officials about proper authority behavior. We are there to serve the game. This is not uh, bullies with a badge or bullies with a whistle are the worst kinds of uh, authorities. Uh, Bob, when you finished your time at the NBA, and now that's obviously evolved even more, people think that the great equalizer is going to be technology, whether it's umpires, whether it's, you know, the uh, lasers tracking where first down markers are. Um, or the more, VA, the VAR is a big, you know, big VA, VA, like, right, Tom, you had mentioned. Um, how does that all fit together? And do you think, um, how does that factor into the humanity of, of sports? Because it's played by humans. So so is there a balance and, and how have you seen that evolve? Is it is it for the better of sports? Yeah. Boy, what an what a, a, a important question, Joe. Um, I was at, as, as I said, I was the vice president, referee operations director of officials. And uh, at that time, we started looking into um, virtual reality as a training methodology for officials because the more reputation, reputation, reputations they could get, the more that they would see. So officiating really is recall. So we, we, we go over so much videotape to be able to have the recall of when you see that there's a reaction that you see what's taking place and you, and you know what a violation is, you know what a foul is. One of the things that we put into referee's head are SQBR. And, and we use all these little things because you can't have so much thinking going on. You have to be reactive. So speed, quickness, rhythm, and balance. If the speed, quickness, rhythm, and balance is disrupted, it's a foul. If it's not disrupted, it's not a foul. So those are ways that you can try to calibrate officials. What is the thing that coaches ask for all the time? The fans. Consistency. We want consistency. I'm not a believer in consistency. I'm a believer in calibration. In order to calibrate all of the officials, we have to have them thinking the same way in order to get to the consistency. So, for example, if, if Joe and Tom – in your homes, you were, uh, your, your uh, clocks were off by five minutes. You can function. But if they're off by an hour in every room, you're going to be all messed up. And so that's like officiating a six-lane highway, right? If, if, if the game is a six-lane highway, if we have officials that we can get to two-and-a-half lanes and they're staying in those two-and-a-half lanes of adjudic adjudicating calls, coaches and players and fans will accept that. It's when the six-lane highway – and one official's calling something over on this lane 
and another official is told, then it, it creates craziness. So calibrating how they judge, how they adjudicate is their responsibility. Using technology to be able to advance. So I was in a position, Mike Bantam was the vice president of referee operation. Rod Thorne was the president at the time when the two minute report came in. Remember all that hoopla around the two minutes? And um, I, I've often said to folks, you know, this world is a fast train. You can get left at the station or you can get on the train and stay part of it. And our choice was we're getting on the train and staying part of it. Adam uh, Silver had made a decision that this was going to be part of who we are. Uh, we had a lot of discussions about it. Um, and so the first year, in, in order to establish a consistency, I did all for the two minutes so that it would be the same person evaluating. And while we found that we were probably in the high 92, 94% correct, the problem is, is that in that last two minutes, as I said earlier, the team can't recover and the attention comes from all the media, the fans, because, you know, nobody shows up at airports to watch planes land safely. Uh, it's when the disaster takes place that everybody's got the attention on it. So that's that's going to be the same thing with us. But it was a way for us. But it was also from my standpoint, man, I could watch referees and I could see who handled the pressure a lot better than others. So you became more knowledgeable about your staff. And then it was about coaching them up and saying, you cannot, in the last two minutes, just put that whistle in the pocket of that old mentality of the 1950s and 60s. That doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. You've got to, that call that has to be made has to be made. And it has to be made with a, a level of certainty. I get that. And that may slow down your decision process, but it doesn't mean it stops your decision process. So it gave us opportunities to have these situations. So I'm a big believer. I, I always fought for replay. I, I thought it was important. Why should it be only three referees only get to see something once to make a decision when the rest of the world sees things over and over? Um, I'll give you just a story. So I had a horrible call back in the day. Uh, we were down in Miami. The Knicks were playing Miami. Pat Riley is coaching the Knicks, and Jeff's is, Van Gundy's over with the Knicks. And I wipe out a basket on Allen Houston Easter Sunday. You see, uh, it, 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 like a uh, ABC game. Uh, we don't have replay. We can't go to it. We go to the locker room, and now I know I'm wrong. I mean, it's a horrible feeling. You just you don't sleep for a couple of nights. And it was late in the season, Easter, so it, it created a problem for the Knicks of getting home court advantage for um, the playoffs. I have the first game in, with the Knicks in Indiana in the first round of the playoffs, and I walk out on the floor, and there's Spike Lee yelling at me and screaming, he, he's, we should be at home because he walked over to me and said, Spike, I've seen every one of your movies. And they ain't all hits either, brother. <laughs> I mean, I, I, we make mistakes. Oh, stuff perfect. happens. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Cool. That's excellent. Uh, you know, one, one last question before, um, you know, I, I'm sure Tom's got another wrap-up one. Obviously, you started in a place at Jersey City mm -hmm. State playing basketball. You've evolved several times. Have you been able to make the pivots in your career? Did it come naturally? Or, or what were the kind of introspective moments where you had, knew that, a second act was coming or you were going to be able to go from one to the other. Uh, how did that, that mindset come about for you? Thank you for saying that because you just had uh, someone's voice echo in my head. David Stern was a demanding boss. David Stern uh, became a friend and a mentor. And what he would always say to me is there is always a next act. And um, so as a, as a young trooper, um, you know, I go from playing college basketball to become a uniform trooper, and then I have that undercover job, and the undercover job opens the door uh, to therapy that I see as basketball, and I start refereeing summer pro basketball, and I'm at the Jersey Shore Summer Pro League, and Daryl Garrison comes out of the stands and asks if I'm interested in refereeing in the NBA. I never gave it a thought, and I really believe that it was my state police background because in that era of the NBA, it was about controlling games because there was a fight every night. And, and so I had the ability to, from my police training to start seeing problems happen before. And then it evolved and I had the career of 
you know, all through the Magic and Larry years and the Bad Boys and, and Michael's years and, and all these eras, and then to move into the management position, um, all of these opportunities. I'm a big believer we are where we are supposed to be at every step of our lives. And if I look back, that undercover job, that while it took a tremendous strain on me and while it was put, about put bad guys away, it gave me the opportunity to do the work I do today to help a lot of good people understand what they're going through. And the basketball part of it allowed me a platform to be able to be in that position because having those three little letters next to my name has always been a door opener. The NBA next to my name helps me get to spots. And to this day, I'm still an NBA Cares ambassador and, and, and do that kind of work. So, um, Joe, um, I, I'm not a big believer in the word retirement. Um, I've done it a few times. I like the word transitions. We have transitions in life. And um, I turned 71 on November 1st. And um, I keep saying to people that were sending me best wishes, growing old is a privilege. Not a lot of folks get that opportunity. Man, you got to take every opportunity you got and, and, and just enjoy this life because it, it, it's a heck of a run. It, yep. it, it, we're, we're all blessed to be able to be around sports. And to this day, basketball is my therapy. Sports is my therapy. Wow. What a terrific answer. Yep. Outstanding. Tom, Tom you want to wrap us up? Yeah. I mean, I would, I would just say it's funny. Um, it's funny, Bob. Joe and I have talked about that as we see friends in our uh, age range starting to retire or think about retire. And um, I think I've said to Joe and I say to my friends, I, I like the idea of a dimmer switch, not the on off switch. Yeah. <laughs> like Very I do well know, done. I do know, I do know some people who have, who have actually said, I'm retiring on December 31st and then I'm done and I'm going to Florida or I'm playing pickleball or whatever. And it's like, mm -hmm. wow, that just does not seem appealing to me. Cause I, I, I never knew that David Stern said that there's, or I don't know if he's, he's, that's been reported that there's always a second act, but I couldn't agree more. There's always something to be done. Particularly, I think if you're, if you're healthy and have energy and want to try to help people and God knows you're a, a living, breathing example of that. So uh, thank you. Um, we just, I'll just ask you one last question. We, we ask all of our guests two questions. I think you kind of answered the first one. We ask, we ask about career advice, you, and I think your, your answers were kind of embedded in, in your last statement. Um, we also ask people how they keep up, like how they stay smart. You need to know about a lot of things, obviously, for the various things you've got going on. What do you like to, who do you follow? What do you read? Do you listen, what do you listen to? If you could just give us a brief kind of rundown on what you rely Man, on. Man, I, I love that conversation because um, – you know, thirst for knowledge came late in life for me. I, I, I'm completely honest with folks. I went to college for one reason, to play basketball. Um, and, and quite honestly, I thought my middle name was, is he eligible? Because that's all coach used to say, is he eligible? He's allowed to play tonight. Uh, and and um, so it, I, I should have been in the class of 1973, but because of the um, um, undercover job and all that was going on in my life, I – I'm the class of 1985 at New Jersey City University. And um, then I went and got my master's at St. Mary's College of California. And I studied at Harvard Global Mental Health Trauma Recovery Program. I'm a graduate and, and, and uh, alumni of that program. And we'll be going to Orvieto, Italy in, in a couple of days uh, where that program continues. And I get to speak on self-care and, and spend time with Dr. Malika, who is the director. And Dr. Malika has a, a tremendous simple phrase that he says, trauma is inescapable in life. And so um, we all are, are susceptible to trauma. And all of these opportunities continues to drive me to become more knowledgeable uh, about it. So being a lifelong learner and having a thirst for knowledge, I think is what allows you to stay current and also to be accepting of understanding that we go to great lengths to understand all about cultures. I think of generation as culture. Uh, we have to, I, I have to stay current and, and not be that old dude of saying, uh, that's not the way that we used to do it. So this is the way we're supposed to do it today. Uh, listening to the young folks and staying around them and, and hearing and getting their vision of, of how things are going, I think is what is so important for all of us to, to be able to learn from each other. 
And just because one simple thing, one of the things that I, I always knew, the youngest person on the crew that I may be a crew chief of, when it came to a ruling on the court and, you know, when referees huddle, uh, when you huddle out there, one minute feels like one hour because you got the world watching you. I wanted to hear from the youngest official what the ruling was because I had 30 years of different rulings what took place. They only had one, and that was their opportunity to be the leader. And more often than not, they had the answer for us. And so I, I think that, Tom, what you and Joe are doing is, is being around young folks is no greater to me going to the colleges and having conversations and being around uh, it's, it's just amazing. We, we're in good shape. We, we've got great young folks uh, that are going to be leading us for uh, generations to come. I agree. Uh, here's I agree. to that. That's, that's well said. I say this to Joe often as we talk about industry events and conferences, and uh, I, I'm increasingly thinking, you know, um, thinking about this point. Um, I, I want to listen to the young people. I've, I've heard most of everything from the older folks because I've been doing it like you guys, you know, for a long time. And to your point, Bob, which is really well articulated, um, they, they are inheriting the future and they will, they will be hopefully helping sort through these many thorny issues, whether it's something more mundane like sports or climate change or whatever it's right, going to be. Right. It's not going to be, it's not going to be our generation. So I, I couldn't agree more. And, and Joe, that's actually probably the first time someone answered the question. We've been doing this for seven years, Bob. I don't think anybody ever said effectively, I, I like to listen to young people. It's like, to, yeah. to, how do you learn? Uh, that was a great answer. Yeah. So thank you. Cool. So once again, the book, the latest book is Heroes Are Human Lessons in Resilience, Courage and Wisdom. The author is Bob Delaney. Um, thank you, first of all, for enlightening us on so many different areas. I learned a lot in 45 minutes, including the fact that Joe Pistone lives on Long Beach Island, which I didn't know before. So, um, so um, you know, we wish you the, the best, obviously, Bob. Hopefully, we're going to see you soon. We would love to have you on campus at some point as well. Um, uh, last thing, most importantly, the best place for people to go to, to get the book and learn more about it. Yeah, uh, as they say, wherever books are sold, Amazon, uh, Books A Million, Simon & Schuster is our distributor. Uh, any of those locations uh, they can go to. And um, I appreciate the opportunity and, and thank Terry Lyons for putting us together. Joe, Tom, and, and Matt behind the scenes. Um, and to your audience, stay healthy, stay safe. Take care of one another. Take care of you too. Cool. Thanks, Bob. Really, really appreciate it. Have, yeah. have a great week. Thank you. Cool. Once again, this has been the Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast. Our guest today was Bob Delaney. I'm Joe Favorito for Tom Richardson. We'll see you down the road.